All right, everybody, if you have a Bible with you or a device that you like to use or just want to look at the screen, that's fine. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. So we're continuing our look through what is known as the Beatitudes or these statements of what it means to be blessed, flourishing, fortunate, and yet these statements that Jesus makes really just flip everything upside down. And so we've seen so far... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And we talked about how it's, a, it's really a blessed place to be, to know our total dependence upon God. To live actually in a state where we are broken and needy before God. To own that. To become self-aware that that is who we are. But also, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That is, we not only are aware of our neediness before God, but we actually own it at an emotional level, that we feel it, and then we go to God and we find the comfort of the gospel. And so when we find that we've been accepted by the Father through the work of Jesus and now given the Spirit and made His children, then we're able actually to look at the reality of who we are, and and not to misunderstand this phrase, but to actually accept who we are in Christ, to believe the gospel at our core, Not just in our head, but in our hearts. And then once we've did that, to the third beatitude, blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We talked about meekness as this image of strength under control, power under control, that when we move from this state of self-awareness and view of how God sees us to to self-acceptance through the gospel in Christ, then we can become self-forgetful. Because the goal is for us to live lives that are not centered on ourselves, but centered on God for His glory and the good of others. And that's what a meek person is. It's a person who doesn't live always thinking about themselves, but loves others. When we get there, then we're able to get to this really centerpiece, I believe, of the Beatitudes today. Sort of the, the, this middle hinge of the door of the life of the kingdom. And so, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. We thank you for the gospel that we've already been able to engage through singing, through praying, through the reading of scripture. God, we pray that you would help us just to continue to to embrace this little holy revolt we have going on in this space. In a world of busyness, in a world of spiritual pep rallies, in a world where we don't want to take the time to think, to look inward, to look upward, and to love outward, that you you would make this time formative in our lives through your Holy Spirit. We pray now as we come to the truth that, Spirit, you would take it and you would pierce our hearts. You would comfort us where we need to be comforted, convict us where we need to be convicted, and call us into the new life in Christ you've given us, that we might truly display your kingdom as your people in this city for your glory and the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week I experienced a great injustice that's going to make me look ridiculous, but I'm going to tell you about it. So I'm sitting in the library, where I like to go study sometimes because there's a, just a good mix of different people flowing through there, and it helps me, I believe, stay in God's Word, but also in God's world. 
and I get this message. I'm always getting these calls from these random numbers. There's a couple guys I've let use my phone, and uh, they put their numbers in there. And so I, I read the voice message, because you know you can kind of read it now on your phones if you don't want to listen to it. And it says, this is the last time we're going to contact you about the federal offense that you are guilty of. And I was thinking, well, it could be one of these guys I've let borrow this phone. That's kind of what I was thinking. So I'm going to call them back. I'm going to see what it is. And so I call back, and, and this guy's talking in an uh, Indian, not Native American, but just Indian accent. Very, very proper, though, very professional. And he says, I'm calling from the IRS. My name is blah, 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 blah. And then he says, my badge number is XXXXX. I mean, this, this sounds totally legit. And I'm like, well, hey, first off, it's probably not me you're calling about. I've let a couple other guys use this number. And he's like, well, we'll get to that in a second. And so he says, uh, what is your name? And I told him my name. Not smart. And, uh, and so he says, yes, it's actually you that we're calling about. He says, uh, and, and last November you received a notice that you uh, had a discrepancy in the taxes that you had filed. Now, before we get to the end of this, and y'all think that I'm really ignorant, although I am very gullible, and please don't take advantage of me after this. Cassie and I the other day were talking about that incident, so that was true. Is as a pastor, taxes are super weird and all that stuff, and so we had had to straighten a couple things out. It wasn't a big deal, and we figured it out. Well, this guy's like, we've sent you three notices in the mail to your address, and you've not responded, and so the United States government, IRS, has filed a lawsuit against you. And they said, if you do not cooperate right now, we are going to freeze your bank account, and we are going to send local law enforcement to come and arrest you. And so all of a sudden now, I'm entering like a Mel Gibson thriller movie. Because this guy says, if you disconnect your phone, we are going to consider that you are fleeing from arrest. And we are coming to get you. And I'm like starting to panic and, and freak out. And I'm standing like in the library, not trying to talk to him. He's like, do you have 9,000 X amount of dollars in your bank account? And I'm like, I don't know. I'd have to ask my wife. She keeps up with all that stuff. And he's like, yes or no question. Do you have this amount in your account? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what you want me to do. I, I've got to be able to get off the phone and call her. He's like, no, if you disconnect this line, you, are, you, are, you will be arrested. And I'm just, I'm just buying all this. And I'm like, honestly, like starting to maybe get a little teary-eyed. And because uh, I'm just thinking, because he's, He's like, you're gonna, it's going to ruin your credit score. He's told me all this stuff. But you just got to imagine, it's in this, this very professional Indian accent in any way. And he's using all these really big words, which probably aren't big for normal people. And he's like, so here's what I need you to do. Do you have your debit card with you? I said, yes, I've got it. <laughs> he's like, do you but it's in the truck. i got to go to the truck. And so I run to the truck. My wife's so embarrassed. She's told me after this I need to have no, not even have the information about the important things in our life. And it doesn't end as bad as you think it's going to. But I run to the truck. I got it. I've got it here. If he would have asked me to tell the numbers, I would have. So praise you, God, that he didn't. And he says, all right, what I need you to do now is I need you to put your phone on speakerphone and drive to the bank. He's like, we're, and he says, because we're not wanting to hurt you or harm you, we're not going to take the money directly from the bank because if the bank knows you're doing this and you're under this investigation, they'll freeze your accounts. So we want to help you, and you need to withdraw that cash and go to Target and put it on a 
special card. And so I'm really honestly sure thinking, well, thank you. That's so nice. <laughs> and, uh, and so he says, get to the bank. I need you to park. And you're going to go in, and you're going to tell the teller you need X amount of dollars. I said, oh, I don't even know if we have that much money. And he says, well, just get as much as you can. Okay, it should have been another sign. And, uh, and so here I go, walking into the bank. I have my phone on speaker in my pocket. Because he's like, if this connect, disconnects for any reason, y'all, nobody's going to trust me as a pastor after this. But anyway, if this, if, if this disconnects for any reason, you know, assets frozen, you're arrested. And I'm just thinking, man, anyway. And I'd been at the courthouse earlier for something else, and it's just all in my head, I promise. And so here I go, walking into the bank. You know, like Liam Neeson or something, you know, they've got my daughter held for ransom. And he's like, if they ask you what it's for, tell them it's just for personal business. And so I'm walking in there, and praise God, there's a long line. But here I am standing, like, trembling in this line with this in my pocket. And all of a sudden, I, I, I just give credit, hopefully, to the Holy Spirit, since I have no common sense, obviously. I thought, this doesn't sound right. I mean, we're talking like an hour later. I'm not exaggerating. I was trying. I was like, this doesn't sound right. Why would they? And uh, he had used a lot of legal words, I promise. And so I just said, I told him, I was like, if I have this in my pocket, it may accidentally get knocked off. What do I do then? He's like, well, you just call right back. So I like, I said, I just got on the phone. Looked up IRS scams while I was standing there, and I saw that's probably what it was, so I took it off. And then who knows what a laugh they got after I left. I walked into this bank guy's office, and I said, I don't know if I need to be talking to you about this, but here's what's going on. Do you think this might be a scam? And he just looked at me and was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I got really angry. And so I was back out to my truck, and I come back in, and I was like, how can I report this? And he's just pretty much like, there's really nothing you can do. These guys have these call centers set up, and they're, you know, running all these calls from these different places. Man, you just feel stupid. You're probably thinking, because you are stupid. <laughs> That's what my wife said. But, but you're like, this isn't right. They shouldn't be allowed to do people like that. Even ignorant people shouldn't be treated like this. And I was just wanting to fix it, wanting something to be done right. And there was nothing I could do. And I, I started thinking about that in the middle of preparing this sermon. And I was like, man, as hungry for justice, for righteousness as I was in that moment, I am very rarely, if ever, that passionate about righteousness in my own life. I am rarely that broken about injustices that are taking place in other people's lives. I'd say maybe some of you are the same way, that we only get passionate about certain things, whether it be our sin, our lack of righteousness, or others, when it just affects us. When the consequences hit us, all of a sudden we get really excited, we get really intense. But when we don't feel the pain, you know, I don't know if hunger for righteousness is what 
we use to describe ourselves. So why do you guys think Jesus here is teaching his people, his disciples, what it means to display the kingdom in the real world? And he's doing it into this world where Israel's leaders practice a fake righteousness. I mean, we see just down in verse 20 of this same chapter, Jesus says, If your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And these are the guys who majored on righteousness, at least in terms of rule keeping. We, saw it in a, we see it in the culture of Rome that we live in, where the injustice takes place all of the time. But were they hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness, or do we just sort of dabble in it? Do we make sort of following Jesus a hobby or a tack onto our lives? Do we only care about those who are in need? Do we only care about injustices in the world when they hit home? And Jesus promises them that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And this may be why our lives are so completely discontent, dissatisfied, weightless. It's because we're hungering and thirsting after everything else. But Jesus makes this very clear call that if we want to be his flourishing people in this real hard world, then we will hunger and thirst for righteousness. How do we get there, though? The first thing is we have to feel this problem of unrighteousness. And we're going to talk today about two categories of righteousness, personal righteousness and public righteousness. And we're going to see that Jesus speaks to both of these. And the first thing we see is this problem of personal unrighteousness that Jesus would have definitely assumed here. We see John the Baptist even coming in earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, and he is proclaiming a repentance. And he's proclaiming it, remember, not only to those who we would label as the rebellious people, but he's looking at the religious establishment. And he is saying, you brood of vipers, that is, you group of snakes... You speak a big game, but your lives do not line up with the heart of God. Repent. Believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus talks about those who need to be justified, that is, who need to be declared right with God because of their personal unrighteousness. And we see it in ourselves represented in so many ways in this room, not only in some deep, dark, past secret in your life, but by anyone who knows you, or if you really know yourself, probably this morning, definitely this week. Some of you struggling with anger, resentment. Others, pride and flattery and the fear of man. Some with vanity, your image, you're all about your image. Being willing to deceive and compete with others to make yourself look good. More with envy and comparison or this self-focused melancholy and self-pity as if all the world's against you because all your world is about you. A greed, a stinginess, or a cowardiceness, a fear. Some with gluttony, impulsiveness, self-centered acts. Others with lust or vengeance. And still more with sloth, laziness, or indifference. Somewhere in all of those, probably, we find ourselves today. These are not merely just bad habits, Jesus says. These are not merely just us being human. These are acts of treason against a holy God who has created us and who loves us. It's a problem of personal unrighteousness. But Jesus also saw this problem of public unrighteousness. He spoke about those who would devour widows' houses. 
He brought the gospel not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles who were known as dogs, who thought it would just be good if they could get a scrap from the table. He tells later in the Gospel of Matthew that there are many who are in prison who are not being visited, many who need to be fed who are not being fed, many who are alone and disregarded. When he looked out upon the crowds, it says he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He said that there were burdens being placed on people's backs and no one came to help bear them. And as we think of even the name of our church, Matthew's Table Church, we see when Jesus even dares to associate with the tax collector, the white-collar criminal, and the, and the sinners, what we might call the blue-collar rebel, that the religious people look on and they say, that's not right. We don't mix our people like that around the table. They can conform to our culture or they need to stay home. As I thought back over my life, and even just in the recent past, I, I see this problem of public unrighteousness all around us still. As I said, I spent a little time in the court, Bradley County court session the other day. And you just got a spectrum of injustices taking place. You have some people who are, who are guilty, who are going free, because they have more money to get a better lawyer than someone else. I'm not saying it's anybody's fault. It's just, it's how life is. I saw others who, I don't know how guilty or not they were, but treated with no dignity. It's just someone to collect a fine from. I've heard stories of children being abused. I've decided not to speak in more detail about that, but you know the stories. They're told to be quiet. Some, sadly, even told they were asking for it. I hear of, through the CPR, Missional Communities, common mission often of girls being manipulated, becoming pregnant, being, being left alone, being told it was their fault. I think of these uh, children some I could name. These are not made-up stories that we love and serve. And Melissa does in the Boys and Girls Club from, from Hispanic countries. And they tell me stories of riding on the bus and being told, you're about to get sent away. And they're going to build a wall to keep you out. And ever how we feel about that politically, that is a wrong way to speak to a child. And no child should ever have to hear that. Think of our friends Oswaldo and Maria recently going into a grocery store and having a couple walk behind them mocking how they speak. Having no advocate. Being afraid. If y'all know Oswaldo and Maria, they're talking about the least intimidating problem-causing people. I think of the time I've walked into a nursing home and I've seen older people being left to sit in their feces with no one to tell, sometimes no ability to tell anyone. I think of children in the womb to be aborted and told they're not really a person and then made simply into a political issue 
for some to gain votes by and others to keep from. Think of children. Again, however, we, we, we have certain stances on this, but who struggle with same-sex attraction, being bullied, and not being even able to tell their parents about it because they know they'll just be told they're an embarrassment. Think of Christians in Iran being tortured and left to political paperwork. Think of payday loan rackets that occasionally help, but more often trap people in a cycle of poverty and oppression. I think of my friends Malachi and CJ, African Americans, whom I walked across the street and just said, could you share your story with me because I don't really trust the media and telling me of times in their life when they've been pulled over and slammed to the ground because they were told they fit the description of a criminal. Think of the ladies whose story last week I heard who, after our last election, a group of men drive by and throw eggs and hit her because of the color of her skin. I think of one dear friend who grew up in the foster system, who had no parents, who was tossed around, who was given a lot of labels and then left alone. And we could go on and on. I'm sure we have stories on all sides of all these issues. These are just some that I know personally. Recently I saw, was watching a crime show, and a, a person who they thought had been complicit in the murder wasn't going to talk, wasn't going to say anything, and you maybe have seen them do this before. So they took out this horrible, gruesome picture, and they pushed it across the table, and they said, look at it. Look at it. And they're wanting to turn their eyes. No, no, I'm not looking at that. That's too painful. And so the, the bad cop and the good cop, bad cop thing, you know, just grabbed their head back and opened their, it was like squeezing their eyelids saying, no, look at this picture. See what we're talking about here. This is serious. We're not playing around. This isn't about your protection. This is about finding out who it was that killed this person's daughter. And I think this is what Jesus comes to do for us, is he wants us to have the guts to look at all of the unrighteousness in our own hearts, our own sin, and to look at all the injustices and unrighteousness in our world. It says that Jesus saw the crowds, and then he felt compassion for them. If we are going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, personally and publicly, we've got to be willing to see, to feel, to be broken, to be poor in spirit, to mourn, and then to be meek enough to listen. Who knows, there may be some of you as I go down through these issues, your gut reaction is just to respond, to just to say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. There's a time for the yeah, but, but before we get to the yeah, but, we just need to understand, we need to listen, we need to feel. We do it for our personal righteousness. We must do it for, our pu for public unrighteousness. Martin Luther said, Man's basic problem is that he is turned in upon himself. So we're talking a lot in these first three Beatitudes about we need to have to look inward. We need to do that self-work. 
But Jesus does not want to leave us looking in. He wants to make us look in so then we can become meek and live out. Lives that love God and love others. So he calls us to a path not only to fill the problem of our unrighteousness, but to embrace the pursuit of righteousness. And so we see this call that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, blessed. This is, some of you are thinking, oh man, that's going to ruin my life if I take this stuff seriously. There's too much fun to be had. There's too much comfort to enjoy. I don't want to get in a conversation about those things. That's just going to cause arguments in my family and amongst my friends. Why don't we just keep it, keep it nice? And so what we're saying when we say that is Jesus is wrong here. That it's not blessed, it's tortured. Tortured are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But Jesus says this actually is the way of flourishing of the good life in the real world. And it's to hunger for it. What comes to your mind? Pain for it, right? It's a craving, isn't it? Your stomach cries out. It's a thirsting. One person said it's like a a throat's cut and wanting to be, get something to drink. I remember when I was little, I had my tonsils cut out. And I'm like, I need something to drink. And they give you something to drink. No, I don't want to drink. But you're, it's just this, this unquenchable desire. It affects us. We get hangry, don't we? When I first heard that, I thought, man, what a description of my wife. I've needed that. Right? It's like, get her some food before somebody gets hurt. There's this hunger gets deep, doesn't it? We're not talking about, let's plan a meeting to talk about issues. Those are fine. We're not talking about a theological paradigm for this only. We're not talking about a process. We're talking about passion. And passion at the end of the day, Jesus knows this, is what changes our lives. Bill Murray said, Hell hath no fury like me when I'm slightly inconvenienced and hungry. It changes us. For what? For righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness in the scriptures really is things being put into right relationship. Things being put into right relationship with God, first of all, and things being put into right relationship with others. This is what it means for us to be righteous. It means I am now in a right relationship with God, but also, you just can keep reading all the uses of Jesus for righteousness in the Bible, it's also a right relationship with others, with the world. Personal righteousness comes through a legal declaration that based on the work of Christ, through our faith in Him, we are now made right or justified. But again, I think Jesus here we see is speaking to his disciples. So he's calling not only for that right relationship vertically, but also horizontally. He's calling for a moral righteousness. In verse 10, he's going to say, you're going to be reviled for your righteousness. He's not saying you're going to be reviled and persecuted because you have a right standing with God. He's saying you're going to be reviled and persecuted because you're living a life that is fundamentally different than even the religious establishment is living. A moral righteousness that is not just a matter of our actions and behavior, but comes from our heart, that it exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. 
also publicly. There's the legal righteousness, the moral righteousness, but also what we might call the public or social righteousness. Sinclair Ferguson says this of this text, In the world which we live, we are to encourage moral integrity and right relationships, both by the work of evangelism and by all we do to reform society and bring it into conformity with Christ's teaching. The work of evangelism and missions and the task of social reformation are not to be thought of as alternatives for the Christian. They go together. Each is an application of our desire to see righteousness prevail in God's word. That is what we mean when we pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This great reformed teacher goes on to say, We are to hunger for people's liberation from oppression together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the law courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in the home and family. We're to hunger and thirst for this, he says, and who cares what he says? It's what Jesus says. It's what all of the Bible says. Chris, if you would click through here. We'll just hit these fast. We don't have a lot of time. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth and judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Jeremiah 22.3 Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed, nor shed innocent blood in his place. Micah 6.8 he has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus is on mission statement, as it were. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We'll get there in just a second. Just click back, Chris. That's really good news. You know we're coming to it. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. They're tithing their spice racks. Right? That's how committed to righteousness they are. But Jesus says, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. And what are the weightier matters of the law to Jesus? Matthew 23, 23. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. James 1.27 Pure religion that is undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, see that personal, public righteousness. Hebrews 11.33, I like this, I hadn't seen this before when we're talking about justice. He's just talking about all these great people, men and women of faith, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice. Obtained promises. Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Hospitality is not us having a tea party for a bunch of southern women. Hospitality is loving the stranger. And welcoming them into your lives, into your homes. 1 John 3, 17 through 18. 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does, the, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. I'll just have to stop there. I just, we just got to see that this is not sort of man's teaching. This is like in vogue and faddish to care about these things. This is the word of God. This is the way of the kingdom of Christ, that we hunger for it. This is why we in Matthew's table have missional communities that commit to common missions. Where we want to see people be made right with God. But we also want to see things made right in their worlds. We care about both. We want to feel compassion. Give a man a fish. We want to believe dignity. We want to teach a man how to fish. And we want to do justice. We want to make sure they have access to the whole pond. Or at least a non-polluted portion. And we got enough common sense and have heard enough stories to realize we don't all have equal access to the whole pond. Maybe a polluted portion. This is what we're wanting to do together. But we resist it, don't we? We resist our personal righteousness by saying, I'm fine, or I'm better than them, or, you know, I don't want to be a fundamentalist. I don't want to be a legalist. You know, it's not legalistic to want to live a holy life. It's the way of Jesus. As one person put it, grace is against earning. It is not against effort. We should strive for righteousness in our lives. And we resist public righteousness. Oh, in my circles, well, that's not a gospel issue. Well, if it was an issue to Jesus, do you have a bigger vision of the gospel than Jesus does? He is the gospel. And the good news that he brings makes us right with God, but it also is to change our lives and our world. This is hard, isn't it? It's so complicated. I have yeah buts to all the examples I gave earlier. So this is why our only hope is in one who gets this right. This is why our hope is not in a personal righteousness that comes through our activity in the realm of public righteousness. Our hope is found in resting in the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness perfectly. It's Jesus in the courthouse with those treated without dignity by some, not all, as we see him mocked, spat upon, and disproportionately punished while the real criminals went free like Barabbas. It's Jesus in the, with the abused child who's told to be quiet as we see him going like a sheep to, to the slaughter. He opened not his it's Jesus and the young girl manipulated, pregnant, alone, and told it's all her fault as we see him being left by his family. And even as he hung on the cross, told, why don't you save yourself? You're the one who got yourself up there. It's in Manuel being afraid of separated from his family on the bus and told he's about to be separated and never allowed to return to the only place he's ever known as home. As we see Jesus left his father's side 
had nowhere to lay his head. If Jesus were the woman, the old lady that I knew in the nursing home, sitting in her feces with no one to tell as he was stripped naked and left to choke to death on a cross. It's Jesus with those in the womb to be aborted as he entered a world where all the male children were being killed over a political issue. It's Jesus and the Christian in Iran being tortured as he is hung on the cross while Pilate and Herod make a political alliance together. It's Jesus and the beaten girlfriend who has nowhere to live or nowhere to turn as he is beat with a cat of nine tails and told, well, it didn't have to be this way. Jesus with the person called in the payday loan racket that occasionally helps but mostly hurts as he's used by Judas to make a dime. It's Jesus with Malachi and CJ thrown to the ground and with Kendra pelted by eggs as he is unjustly ashamed and accused, profiled and punished, and said to be a troublemaker for bringing up the issue. He should have just been quiet and been thankful kept the peace. It's Jesus with the kids with no parents, trapped in a system, labeled and left, as he's born into a scandal, labeled that he's possessed with a demon, and never understood. And it's Jesus for you. It's Jesus in your story. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness for you. And how much? So much that he doesn't just walk the mile in our shoes, but he goes to the cross to take on all our guilt, our shame, and fear. And he bears the full brunt, not only of the sins committed against us, but the sins we've committed against others. We're not only those who are the recipients of the injustice, we are all doers of injustice. Jesus has taken our place. And unlike we who feel hopeless and helpless in the face of such a world, he rises from the grave victorious, defeating death, hell, sin, and Satan, and brings to us a verdict of righteousness, a verdict that comes personally in our lives, and a verdict that is proclaimed as he ascends to the right hand of the Father over all this world, that one day he is going to return and everything will be set to rights. That one day he will come and we will be satisfied. And he gives us the spirit now so that that satisfaction even breaks into the present. Through glimpses, glimpses and moments. And he empowers us with his spirit now to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Which means as a church, if we're going to do that, we're going to have to be honest about ourselves, about our city about our lives, it means we're going to have to be willing to be wrong. But if we've been, if we've became meek, then now we can be willing to be wrong sometimes. I don't like talking about these issues of public righteousness because I always feel like, well, I don't have all the facts and, and all that. And I don't. And none of us do. So how do we pursue this? We have to do it humbly. We have to do it with a heart to love God and to love others and say, you know, I might get it wrong talking about this and I want to listen and learn from you. 
but I'm going to follow Jesus. And I'm not going to do it as a hobby. I'm not going to do it as something to make me look like I care on Facebook. I'm going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. See, the unrighteousness I faced was just a IRS scam that thankfully turned out to be nothing. Nobody's came and arrested me yet, but y'all see cops out there warn me so I can sneak out the back. But uh, for a lot of people, this is, this is real. For some of us, it's real. And we lean only on this good news. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we come to the Lord.